Welcome to part two of this Rock Geeks podcast. Before you listen any further, and if you haven't already, we can highly recommend that you go back and listen to part one. Thanks very much. This podcast contains language which some people might find offensive. Your mum might be alright with it, your dad will definitely be fine with it, but granny might not like it. That said, your kids might find it educational and learn some new words to make them look cool at school. Also, there are many views and opinions that you might not share, and some fabricated situations that obviously didn't happen. Listener discretion is advised. Just a couple of blokes Pouring all the liner notes We're the Rock Geeks Yeah, we're the Rock Geeks Who played on that? Who played on the other? Who did the album for the album cover? We're the Rock Geeks Yeah, we're the Rock Geeks So in addition to this uh, Spectre NS2 I've read in a few places, um, mainly in forum land, so I can't really take it for granted that it's true, but I have read that Star double-tracked all his bass parts uh, on Dirt uh, with a Kramer Ferrington acoustic bass guitar. I've never heard about this before, and I've never heard of any other artist doing this. No, but... You know, given what we've just talked about, Dave Jordan splitting Jerry Cantrell's guitar signal into three frequency bands. I know. Then anything is possible, I guess. And it, and and I know, like from what we've said about the NS2, that it is a big sounding bass. It covers a lot of space already. Does that? Yeah. I mean, I'm not. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know. Although, like we've found in the research, it comes from you know, like quite a reliable source. Yeah. Fairly reliable, I think. And the source is a guy named Evan Sheely, who apparently for a lot of years ran uh, a Seattle-based music store called Bass Northwest. And he, he states in a private email to a customer that um, this customer then went on to make public on the Talk Bass forum uh, that he sold Star, his Spectre NS2 and Kramer Farrington, and that he sub- subsequently worked with him in the studio during the recording of Dirt. Um, where he witnessed Star double-tracking many of the songs on Dirt in speech marks with the NS2 and the Ferrington. Um, now, what his role was in the studio um, isn't specified, but... He's not credited on the album cover, is he? No. no. I re- it's possible that it comes up on some parts of it. I think Down in a Hole, maybe, yeah. might lend itself yeah, to that. Rooster. Possibly, yeah. Um, but I can't see any need for... I mean, if you listen to the isolated bass of them bones... Yeah. I don't think there's an acoustic in the background of that. I think I think we can be wary yeah. of, of, of this uh, information. Firstly, it's not verifiable. It's third-party info. And Dave Jordan's given quite a lot of interviews about Dirt over the years, and he, has, he, he doesn't mention double-tracking... Mm. electric and acoustic basses in any interviews that I've read. So, you know, while I'm not counting it... You're not calling out, him a liar, are you? No, I'm not calling him a liar and I'm not counting it out of hand, but the sources aren't entirely reliable. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Mm. Moving on, um, quite a rare appearance, I would say, of a 12-string bass. However, up. also used by another grunge band. Go on. Pearl Jam. Oh, of course, yeah. Jeff so, Ament, yeah. So the intro to 
Jeremy yeah. is a 12-string yeah. bass. And yeah. if you ever see transcriptions of that or around the time, it always said um, bass guitar with an octave pedal, whether they were giving you advice on how to do it. Right. But it's not, is it? No. A 12-string bass or a Hamer 12-string bass. It's yeah. four strings, like the normal EADG. Yeah. For each string, you have an octave of that string. Yeah. Like a 12-string guitar would. Up an octave. Yeah. And then that string is doubled. So it's not like you have up an octave and then another thinner string, which is up a further octave. Yeah. It's just a duplicate of an octave right. upwards. Right. Okay. It's the intro to Leash as well, you know, versus. All right, yeah. To yeah. me, that sounds like one as well. Yeah. Well, Leash is quite a, a ten-sounding song anyway, mm. I think. It's yeah. quite an early second album track, is that, isn't it? Also, um, it's if you've ever... Do you remember Attack of the Killer Bees? Yeah. Yeah, the in, the first song on that milk. Oh yeah, yeah. To Billy, yeah, that yeah. Um, that's a twelve string bass as well. Well, it's funny you should mention that because Anthrax recorded with Dave Jordan. Did they in the early nineties? Well, so that's probably what that why that is. Mm-hmm. And also, so, I think Jason Newstead used one right. on the beginning of Wherever I May Roam, although it's not on that studio deep video that we used to watch all the time of them making it, but I'm sure I remember reading that he used one. And also he used a Spectre NS2 for the rest of the album, oh. or most of the rest of the album. So, yeah, there early 90s is a theme. Yeah, there is. Um, in a 1997 interview with EQ magazine, Dave Jordan said about uh, the Hamer 12-string bass, I have a Hamer 12-string bass that is really difficult to record because there's so many overtones from the different string gauges. I first ran into the Hamer 12-string basses uh, when I worked with Tom Peterson from Cheap Trick. He was using Marshalls and High Watts and said, my hero is John Entwistle and the sound I'm looking for uh, is like the sound of a piano string being struck, which I can kind of get. I, mm. can, I can sort of hear that sort of vibe in, 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 uh, in the 12-string bass. Jordan goes on to say, uh, later on I bought a Hamer 12-string bass for myself and I always remember what he said about the piano being struck. So what I came up with was to use two Vox Super Beetle amps uh, that were made in the 60s. They have four 12-inch speakers, two PA-style horns in each cabinet, and are louder than hell. They are really brittle sounding on guitar, but for the Hamer 12-string bass, it's the sound like a piano being struck. I used two of those, so I have eight 12s and four horns. To split the signal between them, I was using an old Roland Chorus modified by Rivera. It kind of shifts back and forth slowly between two amps and sounds like the end of the world. It's amazing. All of the choruses on Rooster are doubled, just the basic notes of the chord changes in the choruses. It's not that the whole bass part is doubled. If his part was playing a run in between the changes, he didn't double that, only the root note of the chord changes. Um, it gives a great sound. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't disagree with that. So, finally, where bass guitars are concerned, another one that I've, I'm not familiar with at all, um, the Dan Electro six-string piccolo bass. Now, piccolo bass is a curious instrument, I think, because it's tuned the same as a guitar, but it's the same scale as a bass guitar. Right. Which So what's piccolo about it, then? I don't know. But I think what it is, it's like... Um, because of the longer scale, it definitely has a different tone about it, yeah. and that's why and that's why they were used. They were used to double in the sixties. They were used, I think, to double 
uh, upright basses right. in the infancy of sort of recording techniques. And when pe- I think they used to have a double bass, a Fender bass, and a Dan Electro bass as well. Um, so you'd have like three basses all filling out a different frequency in the mix. Um, so I think that's why they were used, but you don't really hear of them being used that much now. No. I think they were actually terrible instruments. You know, like the quality of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think I remember yeah. they're, just, they're just not particularly great instruments uh, and they're ugly, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, those horns on them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think that's why it would have been used to fill out a, a certain frequency within the mix. But again, I can't hear it. But maybe yeah. that's good. Maybe it's mixed in so well that you don't kind of notice it and yeah. it just all comes together as one tone. But um, I've not heard of anybody else do it using that technique um, in recent times, although not so recent times, you know, 1992. Yeah, it's it's longer ago than you. It really is. <laughs> Depressingly. <laughs> Should we move on to, um, to amps? Yeah. Guess what he's using, one of them. Well... <laughs> I think the Ampeg SVT is, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Ubiquitous. Ubiquitous. That's the one, yeah. yeah. Neve console, Ampeg SVT. Yeah. We're gonna, those are going to be common themes. Yeah. But it's not just that, is it? It's not just um, one SVT track or an SVT track for each of these different paces. This is, or maybe we don't know as much about other how other bases were recorded for different amps, but... It says here, this is Dave Jordan again, an SVT amp and a Sans amp track, an FX track for bass that had a bit of chorusing and flanging. Yep. Good word. Yep. Uh, a straight DI track, which means it just goes straight into the desk, doesn't it? Yeah. And then something I've never heard of before, a Vox Westminster bass amp with an 18-inch speaker. So that's five tracks of bass, and I'm assuming you just adjust to taste. Yeah. Yeah, but also if he's overdubbing with a Kramer Farrington yeah. as well, that's 10 tracks yeah. of bass if he's using the same technique. Possibly, yeah. So should we should we break down these uh, multiple tracks yeah. and their um, origins? So we'll start with the SVT, shall we? Um, I think we've talked about SVTs before, haven't we? Industry standard. Yeah, yeah. If you look at any concert footage. Yeah. You know, over the years, you can probably see the bass player stood in front of one or more Ampeg yep. SBT cab and head. Yeah. Usually with eight, yep. ten-inch speakers per cabinet. And an yep. SVT2 seems to be the amp of choice for a lot of... Yeah, well, that's what Star was using, I believe. Mm. Uh, the SVT2 uh, into an SVT810E cabinet. Right. Valves um, as well in the head, which yes. obviously I don't like. And he was selling that as well, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, well, it did come up for sale um, relatively recently. Um, the last time there's a record of it online of being for sale was in uh, 2014, I believe. It was advertised on the Mike Star Facebook page, which I, I don't know who maintains or updates that, but it's still being updated. All right. I'm assuming possibly a family member or, or yeah. something of, of that nature. So, so basically... Um, this amp came up for sale and it was being sold by um, a guy that goes by the name of Wolf Keller on two separate forums. Um, and it also involves Evan Sheely, but I can't be bothered getting into it because it's just too... 
it's from forum land and it's just dodgy info. I'm not, yeah. I'm not saying that it, none of it ever happened, but it, I don't think it can be 100% relied upon. So I'm not going to get into mm. um, the the sort of further details of, of, of this amp. But suffice to say, it was an SVT2 uh, and an SVT810E cabinet. What I will say is that the photograph that was used to advertise the amp in 2014, there were settings marked on the amp which apparently were the settings that Star used in the recording of Dirt. All right. Um, which, you know, if you're a, a Alice in Chains super fan, then, you know, that's um, quite a neat little thing to have. The Vox Westminster that Jordan's uh, talking about um, is most likely a 1960s US-made solid-state head, no valves, um, <sighs> with the separate speaker cabinet housing the 18-inch speaker. There's a website, which I believe is an American website, called voxshowroom.com, which kind of gives a history of Vox products throughout the years, which says the following. Um, in 1965, Thomas Organ uh, was importing, <laughs> importing AC50 heads Sorry. with 1x18-inch foundation speaker cabinets from JMI in the UK. I'm assuming Thomas Organ is the name of the business, um, not the name of an individual. It's a good Who name, knows? though. It is a good name. We've got some brilliant names yeah. coming up today. And uh, so Thomas Hogan renamed the AC50 the Westminster Base. Right. The UK model was dropped in 1966 and replaced with a US-produced Thomas-designed solid-state model, uh, also named the Westminster. The earliest version of the uh, Westminster were the V118 and the V. 1181 models, I'll, I'll say. Well done. Um, thanks. The V118 and the V1181 had 60 watts of power, um, a slight uptick from the 50 watt rating of the AC50 heads that powered the UK produced model. Within a year, the 60 watt models were replaced by the V1182 Westminster head that featured a 120 watt RMS, 240 watt peak output stage. The V118, V1181, and the V1182 heads. Powered either a V418 or a V4182 Westminster base enclosure that included an 18 inch Serwin Vega speaker. Um, the Westminster head had two channels. The normal channel had volume, bass, and treble controls plus a top boost switch. The bass channel included only two controls volume and tone X. Uh, now, tone X was a sweepable EQ control that offered about 6 decibels of boost. Um, from approximately 50 hertz control counterclockwise to 300 hertz control clockwise. So there you go. That's the uh, the Westminster. And it, it sort of goes back to what we were saying about uh, Dave Jordan uh, and choosing equipment that isn't necessarily the most expensive, mm. but does a job. Yeah, uh, and does a job well. signal source that Jordan mentions is the Samzam. Now this could either be, I don't know, it might be the pedal form or it could be a rack form of it. Yeah. And they do a rack form as well. Now the weird thing about this is a Samzam is like an Ampeg simulator almost. Right. In some, yeah. in some of its forms. So yeah, I've had a couple of them. They're really good. 
And continuing the John Entwistle theme, which we mentioned before, they did bring out a Leeds pedal, which aimed to emulate the live at Leeds tone. Right. So, you know, there's a bit of a link up there, isn't there? Yeah. Um, Yeah. But yeah, I think the most popular one is just nowadays is just like a little box. They're quite expensive, bass driver DI. um, And they are really good. They do add a, a lot of umph and snaz. Yeah, well, it seems like quite a, um, a feature-packed product for the time is, yeah. when you consider what else was around in the uh, the early 90s. Because I think, I think we take it for granted now that we've got like a plethora of these pedal effects and DI effects and DI boxes and, you know, there's nothing that they don't do these days. And I think we take it for granted that that's always been the case. But in the early 90s, there really wasn't as no. much choice. I think they might have take, had a bit of a lease of life recently as well because a lot of bands now have gone ampless, you know, yeah. and they just go yeah. straight into a PA. They have any, uh, you know, monitors. Yeah. So a lot of the tone will come from one of these, um, you know, in some cases. I've, yeah. used, I've used one for that before where, you know, it's just like the amp, your actual st- stage amp is just like a monitor for listening to you for your VTV yourself on stage and then the tone coming through the PA comes from one of these. Yeah. So from tech21nyc.com, much more than just a direct box, the Sansamp bass driver DI is capable of dialing up big vintage tube tones, bright modern slap sounds, gnarly distortions and all in between. Three different outputs to drive power amps, recording desks, PA mixers or simply enhance your current rig. Controls include presence for definition and upper harmonic content, Blend to combine the proportion of direct signal and Sansamp circuitry, and active EQ specifically tuned for bass with 12 dB of cut or boost. Um, the controls offer a broad range of traditional bass amp sounds, including such meaty styles as Bassman and SVT, as well as raunchy, crunchy, overdriven sounds that would typically require a multitude of effects pedals. It would be interesting to hear each of these five different things that yeah. signals to hear what they're actually doing. That, that Jordan recorded yeah. and, and how he blended them. And, mm. and yeah, yeah, you're right. It would be interesting. Even just to me, maybe not for yeah. you or a lot no, of people I'd, listening. I'd, but... I'd find it interesting. I'd, what I'd find interesting is how he EQ'd, or how he treated each mm. signal. Because I can imagine that very quickly things could get quite muddy yeah. and murky and, you know... It must have taken some quite considerable skill to to ensure that that didn't happen. It's almost like the opposite of committing to a sound, isn't it? Yeah. It's like keeping your options yeah. wide open yeah. Yeah. and being very non-committal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, Jordan um, also mentioned an EFX track uh, that had a slight chorusing and flanging uh, effect. And to find out what um, might have been the source of this effect... We have to go back to Evan Sheely again and that email that was made uh, public on the Talk Bass forum, uh, which went on to state, the Art SGX Night Bass was used with a regular DI box, the Ampeg SVT2 and SVT810E uh, amp system. I used the Ricken Faker preset and then tweaked it to have a bit more of a grindy tone. That was blended with the clean direct box sound and slight grindy Ampeg tone to get the sound that you hear on the Dirt album. So there's a little uh, little insight mm. as to how um, how the sig- various signals were uh, were blended together. You can hear the um, the flange. Yeah. Uh, there's an isolated bass track of them bones, and you can hear it on that. 
that yeah. it's kind of wobbling about a bit. I don't know why, because when it's in a mix, you can't hear it at all, that effect. Well, you know, I, I think sometimes it's one of those things where, you know, you take it away and, and you do sort of lose something. Possibly, yeah. Sonically, you know. But again, you know, this information, um, we have to treat it with caution because... We don't know that this is what was used, um, but the RSGX Night Bass would have been capable of generating both chorusing and flanging effects. It was quite an advanced piece of kit in 1992, like all the kit, really, that um, that uh, Mike Starr's using on this album. But I've seen a few comments also in Forumland to say that the, the unit is overcomplicated um, and also it sucks tone, mm. which kind of makes me think recording studios are all about enhancing tone and enhancing sounds to be as, 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 as good as they can be. So I'm, I'm kind of, I don't know, if, if it's... It, at the time, tone suck might not have been something that was quite so so much of a concern as it is now. I think the boutique pedal boom sort of yeah. raised that issue to a lot of guitarists' um, awareness. So, you know, maybe it got used, maybe it didn't. I don't know. That is the most complicated bass setup we've done so far, isn't it? I and I'd be surprised so. if we get anywhere near that again. Well, maybe we can make it our life's work to surpass do, it. Like do a Primus album or yeah. something like that. <laughs> or, or maybe if we if we did Spinal Tap, the original album, Big Bottom. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of bass guitars on that. Yeah. So yeah, so that's um, that that that's it. Um, that's Mike Starr's um, bass rig. Um, and then they kicked him out. And then they kicked him out. Yeah, he went Less to than a year later. trouble. Moving on to um, to Sean Kinney. Did he play some drums? He hit some stuff, yeah. 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 Next. The end. <laughs> um, so this week's drum kit rundown represents a rock geek's first in that I didn't have to do a ton of boring drum bass research to find out exactly what <laughs> Kinney was hitting during the recording of Dirt. Literally three clicks led me to the photo of Kinney's kit hung on the wall of his Seattle hard rock cafe next to a plaque that reads... Mm. This DW kit was brutalised by Sean Kinney, uh, drummer for Alice in Chains throughout the band's career. It was first heard on the album Dirt and the 1993 Lollapalooza tour. Later, Sean also used it on their 2007 re-evolution tour with Velvet Revolver. Mm. So this this, uh, photo that I found, it not only informs us that uh, Kinney used DW drums and Remo heads, but also that he used Sabian XS20 cymbals. Now, I can now hear uh, all the drummers out there saying, Phil, you percussion product ignoramus. Mm, there weren't no words like that. No. <laughs> Phil, you moron. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sabian didn't produce the XS20 symbol range until 2003, so how can Sean Kinney be, have been using them in 1992 to record Dirt With? Um, and they'd all be quite justified in their outrage. So from the... Um, April 1993 edition of Modern Drummer magazine, I discovered that immediately following the recording of Dirt, Sean Kinney was playing the following kit. Are you going to answer that question then? How is he playing symbols from the future? Well, he's not. All I'm right. Gonna, I'm going to go right, on to sorry. say what he was using. Sorry. I thought you sorry. were being a politician and just pivoting. No, 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 no. This is the kit that he was using on tour in 1993. So it, as as we have established by the uh, kit that's hanging on the wall at Hard Rock Cafe, it's the same kit that was used on Dirt. How do you hang a kit okay. off a wall? 
Well, have a look at the picture and you'll see. Right, I'm going to now while you're talking about this um, boring shit. <laughs> I'm, only, I'm only kidding. So, uh, Modern Drummer magazine's great. I, I mean, I've come across this uh, magazine before, Does not, it have in, not in an excited girl? way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it has a diagram of the drum kits. Oh, it yeah. had one for Phil Rudd Yeah, as I, well. I recognise that um, um, graphic type. Which, which, which I was... You know, I'm I'm grateful for it. It's it's uh, it's, uh, it's good. Uh, so the drum set, um, DW as we know, an eight by fourteen inch wooden snare, uh, eleven by ten tom, fourteen by sixteen floor tom, sixteen by eighteen floor tom, and a sixteen by twenty four bass drum. All the hardware that he used was uh, DW hardware. The heads uh, were Remo Fallum's K on the snare, coated ambassadors on the tops of the toms, and clear ambassadors on the bottoms. Uh, a clear power stroke three on the bass drum. Power, power stroke. I'm so juvenile. Symbols, symbols. It was it was still using um, Serbian um, symbols. But he was using a 15-inch rock sizzle hi-hat uh, with rivets. So not the XS20 range? No, not the XS20 okay. range. Uh, a 20-inch HH crash, 10-inch rock splash, 22-inch extra heavy ride, a 20-inch AA rock crash, an 18-inch HH rock crash, and a 20-inch Carmen Apiece China crash. So they were the symbols it was using in '93. Um, mm-hmm. Sticks-wise, um, like a lot of drummers, he favoured uh, Vic Firth American Classic Rock model sticks. Very good. So there you go. That's 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 Sean Kinney's um, drum kit. Very good. In, in a nutshell. <laughs> Quick um, sojourn through um, artwork land. Yes. Not worth waiting for, would it? (laughs) (laughs) So in my hand, I have a a very crinkly um, Alison Chains dirt sleeve. Yeah. Why, Why is it crinkly, Julian? I think... It came about um, sometime during the mid-90s Yeah. when I uh, pissed all over it, for want of a better explanation. <laughs> you weren't that disappointed with it, were you? No. Was it on fire? No. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think I just I mistook it for... A toilet. A toilet, yeah. There's a few CDs in <laughs> my collection which resemble that, where they've... It's dried out now, obviously, but yeah. it does have a rather unique feel. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's a lovely patina. It is, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's easy to uh, mistake a, a rack of CDs for a urinal. Yeah, we've all done it. Especially if it's dark. We've all done it. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not judging. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice, though. There's a few, there's a, there's a, there's a few bits missing. Few there bits, is, yeah. Few... It's, stuck, it's stuck together. Yeah. I know you've got plenty, lots of literature with stuck together pages, but not... <laughs> But that's all the CD sleeve is a first in it. Yeah. Right? It is. Anyway, yeah. I always thought that this sleeve was um, computer generated, but evidently yeah. it isn't. No, no, it's not. Um, 
Uh, before we get on to that, uh, I should say that there are two people involved with the creation of the album cover for Dirt um, that I really struggled to find any information on to warrant an in-depth inclusion uh, in this particular section of the podcast. But they absolutely should be mentioned uh, because they obviously had a significant uh, made a, a significant contribution to uh, the artwork. And they are art director Mary Maurer uh, and cover designer Doug Erb who I, I have tried to, like I say, I've tried to find info on them, can't really find anything all. They're obviously quite private people with not a massive web presence. So, um, you know, due, due diligence, I've mentioned them. Yeah. I wish I could say more, but I can't. So the uh, cover image for Dirt uh, was photographed by Rocky Schenk, which is possibly the most American name yep. I've ever heard. Like Randy Staub. Again, you don't get many Rockies in England, do you? Randy's, Rockies. Yeah. So Rocky Schenk was an American photographer, or is, sorry, an American photographer. Um, He's still with us, thankfully. And a music video director. And one thing is immediately obvious from looking at his resume, and that is that Rocky Schenk gets around a bit. Uh, And if you look at his website, you will be hard-pressed to find any household name in the entertainment industry that Rocky Schenk hasn't photographed. I think he did the um, the picture of them, which is on one of the on two of the panels as right. well. Is that credited on the um, on the uh, the liner notes, or can he not read them because they've Piss, uh, been uh, pissed on? I think they've been pissed on. <laughs> oh no, it just says generally photography Rocky Schenk. Well, there so you go. Let, then. Let's take it that he did yeah, it. So he did. But look at the band's eyes; they look completely out of it. Yeah. Look how poorly Staley looks, yeah. and look at Sean Kinney's eyes. I can't see any pupil. I can't. Sorry, I, I can't see any whites of his eyes. <laughs> it looks like some sort of Buffy, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's quite, um, yeah, it's quite a, a spooky picture. Yeah, um, they don't look in the best of health. To be no. fair to them, um, well, they probably weren't. No. So, um, in a 2011 interview with Revolver magazine, um, Schenk relayed the story of Dirt's album cover like so. I wanted this cover to have a rather hellish atmosphere, Schenk says. Looking back on the image, he and the album's art director, Mary Mara, created. And for this cover in particular, the band indeed had something very disturbing in mind. Uh, Schenk goes on to say, It was their idea to have a nude woman half buried in the desert. Adding ominously, um, she could either be dead or alive. Rather than shoot in an actual desert, Schenk chose to build one in his Hollywood studio so that he could control the lighting. He painted the sky backdrop, constructed miniature mountains and the desert floor from foam, core and clay and left a body-shaped hole in the ground just big enough for the model to slip into. Um, I've seen photos of, of this set. And yeah, I've seen it as really, well. It's bizarre, isn't it? It's really impressive. Yeah. I think it's in the music bank. What do you call it? Liner notes? All right. Anyway, yeah, it, it is really impressive how they've done it. I, I, I Like I just said, I just thought assumed it was computer-generated in yeah. some way. You know what I'm saying about effects? It's easy. It t- we take it for granted now, don't we? That that's mm. how we generate artwork. Yeah, you but know. they just had to use what they had, I suppose. Yeah, and also it would have been shooting film as well because right. digital photography was not a thing in the early nineties, or if it right. was, it was like really, really, really early days. Mm. So you know, most photographers were still using film, so you know, it makes it all the more um, impressive the effort that uh, that he put into it. So the model. Um, 
the article goes on to say uh, that model was to be Mariah O'Brien, uh, whom Schenk had shot previously for the cover of Spinal Tap's Bitch School single, um, which is, I think, quite a tongue-in-cheek um, mm. heavy metal... It's Spinal Tap. <laughs> yeah, type um, album cover. So wh- while, while there is a sort of sexist misogyny involved in the image... Um, that Schenk photographed for that, I think it is very much a tongue-in-cheek, yeah. knowingly, purposefully, so, image. Yeah. Um, Around the time people thought it was Daly's on-off girlfriend. Yes. Demry. Yeah. I want to say Parrot. I'm sure somebody else correct me and say it's Paro. Um, yeah, she. It, it does look a bit like her, but um, yeah. it's been discounted as that, I think. Yeah, the article goes on to say exactly that. Um, for some time, people thought that this was uh, Demry Parrot, who was the on-off girlfriend of Lane Staley around that time. Incidentally, she also passed away from drug-related issues in 1996, reportedly yeah. a major turning point in Staley's drug use as well. It's the point at which they uh, stopped touring. Right. Um, and Alice in Chains, in that form, ended, basically. Yeah, and he, and he just thought, fuck it. Yep. Press the foot button. Yeah. Um, so, getting back to uh, Mariah O'Brien, she's also an actor and a model whose film and TV credits include Being John Malkovich, great film, and uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I think is... I don't, I'm not sure if that's the TV series or the film. Mm. Um, uh, the article goes on to say, O'Brien, who now works as an interior designer in Los Angeles, it's a very LA... Uh, it is, isn't it? LA occupation, isn't it? Suffered considerably... Uh, for the art. Um, they built me into the set and I had to hold my pee for like eight hours. If I could do a, a like a valley girl accent, I totally would in that sentence, but unfortunately uh, I can't. Um, do it in a Barnsley accent yeah. instead. <laughs> they built me into the set I had to hold my pee for like eight hours, she recalls laughing. <laughs> <laughs> um, Birmingham? I can't do Birmingham. I, 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 it's, it's like one of those accents that's like... You have to tune into it, don't yeah, you? Yeah, it's like Welsh. You, you end up doing some vaguely racist Indian <laughs> accent instead. They were like, we'll put a diaper under you. And I said, I'm not going to pee on the floor. And when Rocky finally said I could get up, I just leapt off the set and dirt flew ev- everywhere. I literally made a run for the toilet. So... Yeah, there's a nod to this album cover. When Alice in Chains reconvened in the late 2000s, Thousands, I think it was, noughties, um, with the new singer, William Duval, on vocals, who incidentally is actually really, really good. Yeah, he is. He's excellent. He's very good, yeah. They had an album called Black Gives Way to Blue, Black Gives Way to Blue, which is kind of a tribute to Staley. I don't think Mike Starr had passed away at that point, but there's a video, a music video for it, called um, A Looking in View, and then right at the end, there's a bit of a scene where the female, um, in the video, she... Kind of, she's in that sort of environment, and it's obviously kind of a bit of a nod to it. Right. So yeah, have you got anything further I have, to say? According to the cover notes, Staley designed the sun icon. All right. Yeah. Which cool. I'm pretty sure yeah. I had a t-shirt with that on. Yeah. It looks very early nineties, isn't it? That very, very early nineties. Yeah. Uh, I think I had it as a t-shirt, and then the inlay sleeve is not a booklet. It's um, six panels, double-sided, and all the lyrics are just on one side. And when you look yep. at them like that, I'm sure there's some kind of visual impact to it. Yeah. Um, a very weird font, which is difficult to read in some bits and then easy to read in others. 
um, some of which lyrics you can't read on mine for the reasons I've just mentioned. <laughs> um, yeah. Cool. There we go. Cool. I think um, it's high time that we... Um, actually talked about the songs. Yeah, actually talked about the music. Before we start analysing each of the songs, the CD I've got and the Spotify version of it now has got the track list in different order. Yeah. Well, kind yep. of a different order. The Down in a Hole is moved from being the penultimate song. Yeah. To being after... Is it uh, like the Rain, fourth? Yeah, it moves it right back. And I'd yeah. not listened to it on Spotify. And then two or three months ago, I listened to it and then it popped up and I thought I'd got it on shuffle or something. Yeah. Might be like if you listen to Nevermind and On a Plane comes on after Come As You Are or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, but when it was in that form of it being right near the end, I can't think of any other albums that have got three singles as the last three tracks on it. Yeah. Because you would have Angry Chair, then Down in the Hole, and then Wood, yeah. and then the opener, which is this one, yeah. um, as being... I prefer it how it was before, but even the... Maybe that's why they moved it to the front, to kind of front load the possibly, album yeah. with the potential singles or yeah. single tracks. although the middle part of the album has like a narrative to it, apparently. There's, a, there's kind of a, a deliberate order to the tracks in the right. middle. Um, yeah, so for this, the tune down half a step, yep. as Weezer did. I think they're the only ones so far, aren't they? Yeah. Weezer tuned down. This song is the is like drop D, which is in effect drop D flat kind of tuning, isn't yep. it? Which gives it that extra weight. I, it took me a long time to warm to this song. It's not one of my favourites. I think there's a good reason for that, because... Like I, I noted down here, um, chromatic chord sequence, and we, I think we've talked about this before. Like one of one of the, the manic go- manics episodes, wasn't it? Yeah, one of the golden rules that I was taught about songwriting is don't use chromatic sequences because they're really hard to get a good melody mm. over the top. Um, I think Alice in Chains' kind of way of approaching that, though, and they're doing a lot of the songs. They have a lot of elongated words in yeah. the melodies. Yeah. And I think if you've got something moving underneath it chromatically, then maybe that makes it easier to. Yeah. Well, it makes it easier for them to do it. But yeah, yeah. I've got like all in from the first beat. Uh, weird time. Well, it's not weird. It's just seven eight time signature, isn't it? So it's like it misses yeah. a bit of a beat. So it's chromatic and it's in seven eight. And it's a single and it's the first <laughs> song on the album. A good big chorus and even the chorus is chromatic as well, isn't it? Yeah. It kind of goes down and then yeah, it's got a chromatic yeah. element to it as well. But yeah. I, I, I mean, I love it now. But uh, I remember at the time, I, I just, I just want that keen on it for some reason. Yeah. I have more of an um, affection for it nowadays. It kind of perfectly illustrates what um, apparently Dave Jordan said to Jerry Cantrell before. I think before they started working on uh, Facelift, he said um, Metallica took Sabbath and sped it up. And you've taken Sabbath and slowed it down. <laughs> right, okay. And oh, this, I like that. I think this song is a perfect example yeah. of that, you know, it's got that very grindy yeah. sort of it's kind of it's kind of almost glacial really, isn't it? You know, in the way that it sort of like the song moves along, you know. It's um it's a good showcase, an early showcase of their um harmonies. Yeah. That yeah. lane state um the Jerry Cantrell sort of I always think he's got no grit to his voice at yeah. all, has he? In a good way. Yeah. And then you have Staley, who's got all that. But I, I didn't realise for ages that um, Jerry Cantrell was so 
forward in the mix. Mm. Um, I always thought that like the harmonies were all Lane Staley overdubbing the harmonies, but mm. actually their voices They're good out there. They mix blend together. together really yeah. nicely. Um, I, another thing that I noted down here, like immediately, you know, like the drum sound. Um, I mean, the whole album, everything about this album is supersized. Yeah, everything sounds just thick and chewy and in a good way. Um, and I, I made a note here of, of when Damn the Torpedoes came out, um, Tom Petty's breakthrough third album, um, there was a lot made of how Jimmy Iovine and Shelley Yakis had engineered the drum sound and made it sound like bigger than any mm. drum sound ever recorded, you know, more hi-fi, more punch, more power, more impact, you know, and this drum sound on this album makes me feel the same way. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a really big, powerful drum sound. Um, it's the... I don't think it go anywhere else on the album apart from first. No. You know, like, yeah. obviously it's easy for me to say that because it's the first song on the album, but yeah. just it's more compact as a song. Yeah. Um, the way that it comes in, it's, yeah, it's an obvious opener to the album. Yeah, I think so. All Cantrell written as well, and apparently it's a bit tongue-in-cheek about how the fact we'll all die one day. Yeah. So, you know, people read a lot. I think a lot of these songs people think are, are just about, you know, Lane Staley and are written by him and his drug addiction, but yeah. a lot of them are written by Jerry Cantrell and yeah. they're about other kind of, and they're about other things, which, as yeah. with most lyrics, you can take new two meanings from them. Yeah. I mean, prior to Alice in Chains getting together, like Cantrell... Lost his mother and his grandma in within like a year of, right. of each other, and when he moved out to um, Seattle, he didn't actually know anyone. Um, mm. And so, you know, I, th- I think these themes, these lyrical themes, are obviously like something that's on his mind. You know, mm. if you've been around um, death quite frequently, it's you know you're gonna you're gonna use that. If you if you know if you're a creative person and you're writing songs, you're going to use those themes in what you're writing because you know you've got to have a, an outlet for true uh, for those kinds of themes and and and, and feelings and emotions. So yeah, so I one think- of the reviews at the time said it's quite biblical. Some of the themes you've got a dam, a rainstorm, floods, yeah. piles of bones, yeah, and kind of so there's something very kind of grim in it. Yeah. When you really think about it, yeah. it's grim. It's but, not quite the Holy Bible grim, but it, no. it, in the way this is... Well, maybe it is in a way, because a lot of this is completely autobiographical, whereas the Holy Bible had, you know, was obviously looking at wider things. But yeah, good yeah. opening song to the album. Yeah. Um, very good live as well. Yeah. Really good live song. Down that river. I think if you're going to play the same riff for... 85, 90% of the song. It better be a good one. It better be a good one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think they opened concerts with that one. Right. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a good opener, I would I would say. Um, uh, you know, the first word I wrote down here was riftastic. Yeah. Um, and I, I think how they get away with it is Jerry Cantrell's guitar arrangement in the verse. Yeah. It changes it a little bit, doesn't it? A little genius. Bit. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Yeah. The bass carries on doing the same thing. Yeah. But... Yeah. I quite like it when you don't realise the same riffs being used for like the verse and the chorus yeah. and the band are able to, you know, yeah. kind of make it interesting. But this I, is... Sorry, go on. 
I, I was just going to say, I, I think that that's testament to Lane Staley's vocal um, melodies. Mm. You know, like, I, I think that's how you get away with the three-chord trick song, and that's having a really strong uh, chorus melody. I think it's, this is a, a Cantrell song again, though, so it's kind of to do with his delivery, isn't it, as well, yeah. I suppose, Lane yeah. This is the one that I said the Archives of Pain reminded me of. Right. Can you remember yeah. that? Yeah. When we did the Mannix episode. Yeah. Um, yeah, that riff is the one that I thought it reminded me of. Yeah, again, there's a slight chromaticism to that, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, one one thing that I've noted about um, Staley's vocal is it's, I think it's him doing backing vocals with so. himself. It's got a really gritty kind of delivery. Yeah. Um, and it's quite... I think we mentioned earlier that, um, you know, record execs didn't quite know what to do with Lane Staley's vocal because when they heard their um, demos, they, they all said the same thing, like his voice is too low because mm. they're used to all these hair metal guys yeah. screaming their nuts off. But I think um, this this song sort of perfectly illustrates... Um, why, in my humble opinion, Lane Staley's vocal style is infinitely superior to that of, you know, your hair metal screamer. Yeah, Vince Neil. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> drop D as well, this, which makes yeah. it even lower. Which yeah. it, And drop D lends itself to those kind of riffs, doesn't it? Because you yeah. can just bar your finger across and move kind of around the string a bit easier. The middle bit where the solo is, I could never quite place the beat. I remember working it out when it came out and it took me a long time to do it. I've I've forgotten it again now, yeah. you know, what it is. But it, 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 if you try and count it or if you try and work it out, it is a bit odd and it seems to come back into that last verse. Not too early, yeah. but it always takes me by surprise. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one thing about that section I've noted is, as with them bones... Not a widdly solo, no, at all. You it's know. not a widdler, really. I don't no, think. No, no, and and but what he does, he, you know, he he crafts these solos with great economy, mm. and you know, m- melodic um, awareness of what's going on underneath the solo. Mm. You know, um, or it might have just been the drugs. It could have been the drugs. Yeah, I mean, he could have just smoked a bong and just like been like, yeah, uh, I can only play this fast now. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But yeah, great song. Yeah, amazing riff. song that makes me feel seasick why is that what the uh, that it's bit. just it, it's a com- like right from the off you've got this um combination of like feedback and then controls using his tremolo arm to sort of you know give an almost sort of vibrato effect to the you know like a vibrato pedal yeah um where it's just shifting the pitch and and making it sound all woozy and wobbly um, there's a few dive bomb sort of sounds in there, and the way that the the the, the vocals, like the vocal harmonies, interact with that background just makes. And but it's not just that; it's 
it's how the whole thing's constructed and arranged, like with that that bass line. I think it was a jam. It's the only track on the album where all four of them are credited as songwriters. Right, right. I reckon it was the bass and drum. It came, you know, they were just jamming, and right. then they kind of added. Right. Then it came about from that. It sounds like it, doesn't it? Yeah. Even I, how that song builds. You know, like you said when we first put the track on uh, to have a listen, it's sludgy as hell. It's Isn't an it? absolute. That bass line is like a, just a sludge fest from start to finish, and and you know when you put all those disorientating sounding guitars and all little pitch shifts and and what have you over the top of that sludgy bass line, it just makes you sort of feel a bit like. There's a song on Bad Motorfinger Soundgarden called uh, yeah. Slaves and Bulldozers. Yeah. It's the second song on that. Yeah. And they're very, very similar. Yeah. Like a sludgy bass line to start off with, drop D. Yeah. Very, very similar in feel. But um, um, you get to the chorus and what a payoff. I know. It's, it's, worth, it's worth the hard work, in it? It is. I mean, it's a phenomenal <laughs> chorus. You know, like, from out of all that sort of... It's not exactly top ten material, is it? Do you know what <laughs> no, I mean? It's, but the chorus is uh, poptastic. Well, yeah, <laughs> it is. It is, and it's so well delivered as well. Like, mm. um, you know, I, I've I've noted down here that on the last chorus at the end, he does this vo- vocal legato, and and he does that like in in all the choruses, but he do, he extends it a little bit on the at the end of the last chorus, and to think that that was triple tracked. Is that where he goes up at the end? Yeah. Keeps going, yeah. yeah. And he's, he's overdubbed it with such precision mm. that he's done that, like, and it's a really complex vocal line, and, and you, you just can't tell that it's triple-tracked at all. You know, no. it, it's it's so well done, so well executed. Um, yeah, phenomenal. So, and, and, and also, um, we continue with the um, less... Common time signatures, you know, we had them bones in seven eight, and then this one has a bar of four four followed by a bar of two four. I think. I think that's what it is. Yeah, that's what it is. Which isn't, uh, you know, a normal. No. Um, Doesn't lend itself to being a an e tapper, does it? No, no. But. Yeah, great chorus. My God, what a chorus! Yeah. All yeah. those, uh, all those syllables descending. Yeah. And just perfectly delivered. Yeah. Marvellous. Absolutely. Keeping on with the original track listing, Sick Man is next. And I think this came about after Lane Staley told, or asked, requested, Jerry Cantrell to write the most twisted arrangement he could come up with. And he's not far off. (laughs) He's done a good job. He's fulfilled the brief. Yeah. It's got lots of great yeahs in it. A lot of my favourite vocalists do very good yeahs. Ian Asprey. Ian Asprey. He's the king of the yeah. Jim Morrison. Although... Crispin Hunt from the Long Pigs, he does a great yeah, yeah, as well. I just yeah, I think it's a really good sort of indicator of a great vocalist if you can do a great yeah. Yeah, it's 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 actually a hard word to pull off. <laughs> yeah, I think. Um, I, I, a couple of the notes that I made while listening to Sick Man, I put the uh, the arrangement is quite ambiguous. It's kind of hard to tell where the verse is, where the chorus mm. is. Is the middle eight a middle eight because it goes on for far more than eight bars? Mm. You know, it kind That's of a philosophical question, isn't it? Well, yeah. Is a middle eight a middle eight if it's more than eight bars? If it falls <laughs> in the woods without, yeah, anybody hearing it. Does it sounds it sounds like lots of different things kind of stitched together. It does, it does, and and 
And on that theme, I've written, I've also written down that it's quite an unsettling arrangement in that it never quite settles on any one thing. Mm. Like, there's a bit where, um, at the end, where Sean Kinney hits a snare in a really, really random place, seemingly. Like an eternity before the next snare comes in. Yeah, yeah. And and, and all these things sort of keep you off balance as a listener Mm. and keep you sort of on your toes. It's it's actually quite a tough listen. Yeah. I think Um, the subject matter, I mean, we don't talk too much about, like, the you know, what he's actually singing about. But I think this is where we start getting into the depths of, you know, the issues that he's having. Yeah. And you can tell that yeah. the, if, if ever, if ever um, music matched lyrical content, this yeah. is a very good um, example yeah. of it. I mean, as far as sort of the grunge era goes and, and you know, any other era of music really, if there was a, a heroin album, <laughs> this is probably it because there's not a fast track on it. You know, like um, how like um, a lot of you know techno in the nineties was sort of amphetamine and yeah. ecstasy driven. Yeah. Like this is the opposite of that. You know, it, everything's mid tempo or yep. slow. It grinds. It's 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 unsettling. It, harmonically, it's quite a difficult album to digest. And, and and you know, if you were in the depths of heroin addiction. This album and Sick Man in particular, I think, would be a song that would sonically mm. um, represent your experience more accurately than most. I'm not sure if it was this album or it was the one that followed, which which is quite a grind as well. Actually, I've got a song on it called Grind. Um, one of the reviews just said that, you know, they're not a terrible band, but my God, do they plod along. <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah, think it was a particularly, yeah. you know, like favourable review of them, but I can, and as much as I love the band, I know exactly what that reviewer meant. Yeah, they do yeah. plod along, and this and there's other examples of it as we go yeah. along as well. But it's um, yeah, the very twisted, twisted arrangement, really disjointed and unsettling to listen to. Yeah, it's yeah. not a dance floor filler. It's not. Um, but one thing I would say is that the way that Lane again, the way that Lane Staley delivers the the word "sick man" in the chorus, to know that that word alone is triple tracked mm. to me again is amazing that he's done that with such accuracy mm. um, and, and and made it sound like one vocal talented chap extremely so yeah yeah extremely so I mean they all are right then rooster about Jerry Cantrell's dad isn't it it is yeah the rooster yeah apparently um, Cantrell said um, that he didn't. His dad didn't really ever talk about his experiences in uh, Vietnam, but when he heard Rooster, he said, "Like Cantrell sort of said, you know, did I get anywhere near like the experience that you had?" And apparently, his dad said, "You get a little bit too close, <laughs> right?" Okay. With that one, so you know, it, I, I I think he's in terms of the production, and and I think it perfectly captures that mm. kind of feeling of you know, um, imminent, <laughs> like, imminent death, really, you know, it's sort of on a, on a, on a knife edge, isn't it, you know. It feels like, um, like a key track, doesn't it? I know they're all yeah. kind of, you know, they're all great songs, but... Comparatively speaking, it's, it's quite a lush arrangement, mm. isn't it? You know, you, you've got those, um, beautifully delivered 
vocal harmonies in the intro, which I... I Sounds like a ladies' wonder, didn't it? It does sound like ladies, yeah. I, I was, like, wondering, you know, have they employed a couple of um, lady backing vocalists to come in and, and deliver those, but um, apparently not. And it, and it's a beautiful little melody that is echoed by the uh, by the guitars after the first chorus in, yeah. a, in a more sort of um, rough and rock and roll kind of way. I think it's a two-chord song as well, I think. Yeah, although I mean, they kind of within each chord, there's sort of they vary things a little bit, don't yeah. they? Add bits on, take bits away, but it is basically just a movement from F sharp to A. Yeah, but I mean, you know, like damn that river, same riff pretty much all the way through. Rain when I die, more or less the same bass line. Yeah, um, all the way through. True, um, and then rooster, you know, t- two chord trick, you know, just. It's the genius of the arrangement that makes this song so engaging. Yeah, because it's a bit um, odd, isn't it? It's got quite a lot to you. I mean, don't get to verse two until a good few minutes in, does yeah. it? Yeah, and and you know they do the uh, they do the the first chorus, and then go into the solo. Then a chorus, and then they they take that crescendo even further by sticking another a second chorus on the end of the solo. So the solo's building up to something, and then. Mm. Back into the back into you know where where you know after a solo you might have like a breakdown and go back into a verse. Yeah. Um, this one doesn't. It goes straight back in for the chorus, and 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 you know lifts it even further, which I think is uh, a, a brilliant uh, arrangement device um, that they've that they've used. Cool. For um, all it's great. It's not. It's. I think it's probably one of my least favorite songs on the album because, and I don't really know why. At the time, it was the song that I was most aware of. Mm. Um, did did it appear in a, an acoustic form? Well, they um, did um, unplugged, didn't they? So it might yeah. have, it might have been it might have been around in acoustic form because of that. That yeah. came out in ninety six, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think that it was the acoustic version that I heard quite a lot for for whatever reason at the time. Um, so I was kind of you know this is the song that I was kind of most aware mm. of. Yeah. Um, on dirt, and and yeah, I you know, it, like I say, the arrangement for you know to say it's two chords all the way through. The arrangement just um, is is an absolute work of genius in the production. Speaking of production, um, the bass guitar on this has I noted less depth to it and more of a woody midly kind of hollow mm, sound, which makes me think it might be the Kramer Ferrington bass. Maybe. I never I never noticed it too much at the time, but there's definitely something else going on with that yeah. sound. And and I did um, have a listen out for the Hamer 12-string bass on the chord changes and didn't really no. hear anything of, of that regard. I mean, it might, you know... It, Maybe it just blends, there, in, but blends in really well. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, following Sick Man, that's... <laughs> some light relief. Some light relief, yeah. Yeah. And it's absolutely. about yeah. And it's about the Vietnam War. Uh, yep. Have Alice in Chains got any fast songs? Um I think Damn That River's about as fast as it gets on this album. Yeah. I mean it it feels it's got that sort of chromatic doom. Yep. yep. To it, that it really has. It is all over this album. Um, it's you know. the first of apparently the Junkhead, Dirt, Godsmack, Hate to Feel, and Angry Chair chart the beginning and like where you will, where it sort of ends up with drugs. 
Yeah. So like Junkhead's more about like the curiosity and the enjoyment of it and kind of that um, naivety. Yeah. Like a decadent rock star activity. Yeah. And then once you get to Angry Chair, it's the rehab. It's a rehab song, basically, I think. Yeah. This song has got a few things that are kind of almost buried underneath the surface. Um, like in the intro, the guitar arrangement, they've got this fifth, this harmony, this guitar harmony, which I think is the fifth yeah. of, of the note, overdubbed. So it's accentuating that particular interval, which sort of gives it like a, I don't know, it just gives it like a darker feel. Mm, just to, colours it in me. a different way, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And then, as, a, it, as you pointed out, there's that second vocal. It's kind of buried on the first verse. You can't hear it too much, but there's a, yeah. there's a spoken, um, somebody's, yeah, I'm not explaining Staley, I think it's just like a spoken word in the first verse. In the second verse, it's really pushed up there. Yeah. So the what's the second verse? Are you happy? I am man. That bit's really loud. Yeah. And I think it's panned to one side as well. It's really noticeable. Yeah. And, um, it's and quite first, sinister, isn't it? It really? is. Yeah. And then it, I think third verse it comes back in again. It kind of reminds me of um, uh, Frank Zappa. There's uh, uh, on Joe's Garage. He's got this sort of recurring theme where this this quite sinister voice right. appears, going, "The red zone is for loading." <laughs> And unloading only, oh and it just God. keeps repeating that like every yeah. now and again, and that's kind of the same sort. Of, it's a similar kind of vibe. It's like yeah. this almost disembodied, quite creepy voice. But yeah, you're um, right. It's a plodder. Is this? It's yeah, a definite yeah. plodder. But once again, the chorus, epic is chorus, <laughs> beautiful in it. They pull it out the bag for the chorus. You know, they make you think. Oh God, you know, like I don't know how much. I, I like it. Feels like you've been pulled down, like mm. into the depths of, of of the earth, and then all of a sudden this chorus yanks you back out again. It has a similar kind of thing. Well, in a different way to the Holy Bible, where you have a really grim verse. Yeah. Then you have this really like a nice chorus, nice-ish chorus. And then you go back down again. Yeah. So it's got this dark light, and then back into the dark, then into the light again. Yeah, yeah. And 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 you know, one of the actually one of the lighter moments is the guitar solo, mm. which melodically is 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 uh, it shouldn't really be part of the same song. Really, I don't, I don't think it's quite it's quite uplifting melodically. But yes, and, and, and some great years. Lots of great years. Yeah, he's, he's good at them. So the title track. Dirt doesn't raise the spirits very much, does it? <laughs> <laughs> um, it kind of um, is it the centerpiece of the album? I mean, uh, we talk about this quite a bit, like on, on previous episodes, where there's always sort of like a centerpiece to the album. Sometimes it's the the title track, and other times not so much. Um, Maybe it's bang slap in the middle. On the lyric sheet, the title of it is in the biggest font. Yeah, it's right in the middle of the inlay. Uh, maybe. I mean, yeah, possibly. I suppose it summarises most of the lyrical content and the themes of the album within one song pretty well. Yeah. I think musically it's continuing the, the trend of taking a riff or a, you know, a chord structure and just milking it for all it's worth mm. um, production-wise. I've, I've put down it's quite a proggy-sounding guitar riff it kind of in the same it's kind of in a similar vein to Kashmir by Led right. Zeppelin 
for me harmonically. It feels like um, it's it's like a, a melodic minor or a harmonic minor scale. Um, it's not very grunge, the riff. I know no. the overall sound of the song is very kind of grungy and ploddy, but the um, riff itself is a bit more... You know, but... Speed it up and you've got like a, a, well, yeah, a power metal riff. Yeah, I've got down here in my notes, the bass line is very reminiscent of Jeremy or Pearl Jam. <laughs> yeah. Like, especially in, like, the verses and, mm, and you know, yeah. the way that it moves around. So I've, I've kind of put there, it's like Jeremy's dark cousin. It's kind of, and, and, and also, like, the guitar, you know, the guitar's kind of, like, got that kind of, you know, um, Jeremy-esque kind of movement. Mm. Maybe melodically it's different, but, you know, rhythmically and movement-wise, there's, there's a kind of passing resemblance. Yeah. Um, another bass line that I noted down here in, in the verses is... It reminds me of Paperback Writer because in, in Paperback Writer, Paul McCartney sort of goes like he ends one the first part of the run on the upper octave mm. and then the second part of the run he ends on the lower octave, which is exactly what this bass line right. does. Do you know what? It's all it's also like the bass line to the verse of Alive as well. Yeah, boom, yeah, boom, 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 boom. yeah. It's the same. Oh my word. So, you know, maybe they've been hanging out with Pearl Jam. Possibly. Quite a bit. I've also put down weird beat in the solo. Mm. Again, like unsettling you and keeping you on your toes by placing a, a, a snare crack in an unexpected I quite like that, place. though. It, yeah, it's great. I'm not, yeah. not criticising it. Um, they do it quite a lot, though, don't they? They kind of un- do little bits and place beats just to unsettle you. So the- much self-loathing in the lyrics, though. It's just it's like... <laughs> It is though, isn't it? I, it's I just think, like oh. I think there's been a role reversal in this song because I haven't listened to the lyrics. Oh well, I've just been reading them. It's kind of forcing me because otherwise they would pass me by. So I've yeah. just been actually, you know, like looking at the lyrics as they go along. So I do feel like a bit of a, you know, a dick for not really taking more notice of the, the lyrics. And yeah, there's, yeah, it's not. I should be so lucky. That's for sure. Was this song written about his ex-girlfriend? Yeah, I think it's got some kind of connection to the, you know, about being in the dirt and the cover. I think it's, it's yeah, there's some kind of link to an ex-girlfriend. Yeah, I, but at the same time, it's easy to make the link between the, the overarching theme of the album to do with kind of drugs, <laughs> struggles, yeah, yeah, addiction, substance abuse, all those yeah. different things. Like, I want to taste dirty stinging pistol in my mouth on my tongue. About scraping me from the walls. Yep, um, yeah. There's just, yeah, it's there's not actually that many lyrics in this song. Yep. Um, but it's yeah, it's pretty grim to be fair. Yeah. And that's the extent of my lyrical analysis. Yeah. That's I, I, about as much as you'll get from me ever. I, I think the, the, the line you have the talent to make me feel like dirt, I think that is the line that's mm. sort of directed towards yeah. his ex-girlfriend. And I think that's the inspiration for the album cover as well. Yeah. It's like, a you know, the album cover is like a visual representation of yeah. how his ex-girlfriend made him feel. Yep. So, you know, it's a revenge cover. It's a revenge artwork. Yeah, I've never really thought about it like that, but grim. Yeah. Grim, I've said that yeah. quite a lot of times. Now, the next one yeah. is not listed on the album. Oh, is that the Tom Araya? Yeah, it's vocal. called Iron Gland. Yeah. I've heard it called that. I've yeah. heard it just kind of listed as being untitled. 
and then intro dream sequence, which seems a bit odd because it's in the middle of the album. Um, yeah, so it's Tom Araya. Yeah. Which I didn't realise for ages. Um, I knew it was on the album, but for some bizarre reason, I thought his was the voice in verse two of Junkhead. But it's blindingly obvious when somebody says it's Tom Araya, is that? You go, of course it is. Yeah. What am I thinking? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was just a joke riff, wasn't it? That like Cantrell or Staley wrote. The band hated it, but they said put it on the album and, you know, promised never to play it again. But in retrospect, it probably was a good idea at the time, but now you're like... I would say that it doesn't bring yeah. a lot to the party. It's not, is it? It's like a joke that they thought were funny, but unfortunately millions of people disagree. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, can it be counted even as, like, respite... Like really, from... Tom Tom Araya's respite. Yeah, <laughs> we're coming to something, aren't we? We got so far for for light relief. We've had the Vietnam War, yeah, yeah. and now Tom Araya is is some well needed respite. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we, yeah. We can skip over that one. That's I think a, it's yeah. a dark album. And then it's got the Red Room at the end, which is not the horse. I imagine right. it's some kind of yeah. reference to The Shining. Yeah, yeah, possibly, yeah. or it's murder backwards, isn't it? Yeah. Junkhead and Dirt, this yep. is like the Macarena, isn't it? <laughs> Don't you think? I remember thinking, oh, this was quite an upbeat, quite an yeah. up- upbeat song. Uh, uh, well, I, I, I've noted down here, funk, grunge, chorus. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it, it's, it's a bit of light relief and it's still, a, you know, pretty slow. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I always really liked this one. Like, it's, it's one of my least favourite ones. Is it? No, yeah, I really like it. I like uh, the uh, intro riff, the... I like that bit of it. Yeah. Yeah. His vocal delivery, apparently there's no effect on it. He just sort of, you know, on the verse where it sounds really wobbly. Yeah. I've, 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 I've put down Billy Goat. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's quite an effective delivery com- compared to, like, the other, like, vocal deliveries that he's given yeah. on the album. It's, it's, it's the one song where there's actually something, like, he's actually made a creative decision to affect yeah. his voice in, in a very yeah. specific way. Um, I'm not entirely convinced that it, he pulls it off mm. um, but you know um, you've got to try these things haven't you you have you pro- know. apparently he's kind of like barricade himself in though when he did his vocals wouldn't let people watch him right didn't like being right. watched doing it which might sound a bit weird when you sing in front of you know tens of thousands of people yeah but I guess it's when you you see the whites of people's eyes that the anxiety is yeah. coming isn't it but also you know if, if that's the vocal performance that people are going to hear like every time they put that CD on, mm. you know, the pressure to deliver something, yeah. you know, memorable and unique, it must be must be quite quite high. Especially if the, if the lyrical content is quite personal to you, you know, you, you've got to sort of get yourself in that zone where you can vocally express what you felt when you wrote the lyric. I think mm. this is the one of the most literal ones, isn't it? About what? Yeah. Is that it actually is about? If you were in any doubt about what the the theme was of a song, then this one probably isn't one that make you think that way. 
Um, yeah, so we're yeah. three songs into the five about yeah the drug addiction, and we're into the midst of it now. So yeah, I, I'm I'm struggling to find different adjectives to sort of express you know what I feel about the music. I mean, the music's great. There's no there's no two ways about it. This is an amazing album, but it's it's like you were saying earlier. It's a it's a grind, <laughs> isn't it? Every song is a grind. You yeah. know, like that's the first word that pops into my head with every track that we listen to. The opening track on the next album was called "Grind." Maybe <laughs> yeah. they'd read it as um in the in lots of reviews and just thought, yeah. that's right. It's not called grind. Although I think it's probably about his teeth grinding. To be fair, right. So what's up, what's up next? Hate to feel. Lane Staley penned. Just him. Yeah, well, I, I think... Um, it's got a few bit, a few kind of stylistic bits in it, which are not evident on the rest of the songs, aren't they? Do you not think? Yeah, yeah. Like those little dun-dun-dun, dun-dun-dun. Yeah, I can't... crops up in the next song as well in Angry Chair. Yeah. I, I, I was trying to, like, get a metre for that section, that sort of hmm. pre-chorus breakdown bit. And, it, and, and when it comes back in, it's really obviously in 4-4, but prior to that, it does feel like they're like delaying mm. when it comes back in. Yeah, Because it's really hard to nail down where the beat is. And those little fills that he plays in between don't help, do they? No. <laughs> At all. No, I mean, again, like, other, like on other songs on this album, it's quite discombobulating to listen to and quite mm. unsettling. And, and also part of that is... Again, it's a, it's another chromatic sequence, and just the harmonies, you know, the vocal harmonies and the way that the vocal harmonies interact with the guitar parts, it kind of all serves to unsettle and to. It feels like to me, it feels like I'm being like dragged down, like mm. literally into the dirt, or you know, it's got it's got that very sort of visceral sort of feeling of of descent. I think he plays guitar on this, just Lane Staley. Right. You watch him live, right. he plays guitar. It looks weird. You know, like sometimes you see like people who are used to being lead singers play guitar. Yeah. yeah. And it looks a bit odd. Like they when play. Bruce Dickinson plays guitar on Revelations yeah. on Live After Death. Yeah, exactly like that. But he's got a Gibson SG. That's what he plays. I do love right. I do love an SG. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a great song, is that? It is. I, I think we've um, also. Um, it's got a dance bit at the end where you yeah, can have a little dance bit, to it. Bit of an up-tempo ending. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and also a relatively busy solo for Jerry Cantrell, mm. you know. What get, I like gets it, quite bluesy. What I like about the solo is it's got loads of space in the background. They haven't felt yeah. the need to layer up the guitars behind the guitar solo. Yeah. It's got, like, you know, bass, drums, solo. Yeah. I know it kind of it has a bit of unit. The guitars come in every so often on it, but I do like how it's got loads of space in it behind that solo. Yeah, that's probably why it sounds so big, mm. you know. Um, and also we've established it's a mixture of two songs, uh, Dazed and Confused yep. in the verses, which uh, is which crops up in 3-4 on, uh, on this particular song. And the chorus is very much like Slayer's Seasons in the Abyss. Yeah, the stare at me with empty eyes bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it is. You're right, I'd never mm. ever thought of it like that before, but... Tom is there. Maybe he's yeah. said, lads, I've got an idea. Yeah. Why don't you stick the chorus of our song in your song? Yeah. I mean, it's very generous of him. It's very, very generous. Right, let's move on. You still with us, Phil? Just about. <laughs> just about. Um, <laughs> I, I, I felt like like putting my head on the table and going to sleep. 
<laughs> not out of boredom. Oddly, but, the, yeah, it's a slog in it. Oddly yeah. enough, that is that was the the song from the album that I loved the most at the time. I mean, I like I love Wood yeah. as a song, but that's the one that that kind of drew me into it and made me keep coming back to it, which is bizarre yeah. because of how much of a slog it is. But it's got. Again, it's got like a nice little sing-alongy chorus type bit on it. And it's, not, it's not quite as uplifting as uh, you know previous ones that we've that we've discussed. But I, yeah, it, I mean, it, the chorus again rescues the song. Yeah. It's, it sort of pulls you down and then lifts you up and pulls you down and lifts you up. So yeah, it's it's doing that kind Com- of the common theme that in it. Yeah, that yeah. guitar. I, I don't know what that guitar effect is at the beginning, but it makes you feel ill. Yeah, yeah. I, that that riff reminds me of something in the depths of the yeah. back of my mind there's a, there's another song that that riff yeah. sounds exactly like maybe it's just one of them riffs that you know when you when you when you hear it you think oh that's really reminiscent of something mm. but really there is nothing else that it sounds like it, you, it's just got that familiar yeah. sort of feel to it it's another staley song yeah all all penned by him this is the the last one in the little kind of knot of songs about addiction. This is the rehab yeah. song. Yeah. Pink clouds turning to grey, you know, lots of imagery about kind of, you know, maybe going, you know, kind of in recovery and so on. So, yeah, yeah. it's pretty grim, but yeah. it's, yeah, I do love that song. But there aren't many albums where a little ballad is um, welcome relief, I don't no. think. It's usually a ballad's kind of like a downer on an album, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas here, yeah. it's like, please... I was going to say about the, um, the the chord sequence on Angry Chair. It is like it's a metal chord progression, but it's slowed down so much. Do you know what I mean? That like which what do you mean? You know, in the um, I think it's the chorus again. It's quite yeah, an ambiguous relationship. Yeah. No, no, not not that bit. The, the boom, 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 boom. Oh yeah. Boom, boom, boom. Oh, like it's it's a very very sort of thrash metal sort of feel but it's slowed down to such an extent that it becomes something entirely different it's the it's f to e and then it bends up to a b flat yeah so all them intervals are very kind of they're not not pop intervals are they yeah i mean it's kind of um i'm off the top of my head sort of blackened by metallica kind of has that sort of f E B flat yeah. sort of sequence a lot going of Metallica on. Metallica songs have got that in, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, um, and and again, not dissimilar to sort of uh, Slayer either. Mm. You know, um, um, you know, I'm thinking of, um, I don't know what I'm thinking of. Slayer, Slayer in general, and also, I, it, you know, it's kind of it kind of feels like um, a song that wouldn't be out of place on something like In Utero. Mm. You know the, the the kind of arrangement and yeah um, the the lyrical themes content, you know, kind of does have that sort of nirvanary kind of uh, feel to it. Last so, lap, Phil. So, yeah, well, yeah, two two laps to go. Yeah, we're nearly ringing um, the uh, last lap bell. Well, you know, down in the hole is my favourite song off this album. Is it? In fact, I think it's possibly my favourite Alice in Chains song. All right, very good. Um, it is a very good song. It is an excellent song. Go on then, Phil. It's your favourite one. It is my favourite um, song, and I, and I think the reason is the the the, the chord structure isn't as is, is obviously like chromatic. Yeah. Which I think 
leaves space for more pleasing harmonic arrangements. Mm. Well, I've got really great melodic bass line. Reminds me yep. a bit like Paul McCartney sense of melody. Yep. Weaving in and out of the vocals, like in um, something, you know, like how the bass weaves in and out of the vocals on that. Uh, but it doesn't step on the vocals because I've got the key rule of bass playing is don't step on the vocals, but that's rubbish. It's not. There's loads of other rules of bass playing which come before that. Yeah. But yeah, you don't, you know, try not to step on the vocals. And have it, have the bass around your knees. That's another yeah, yeah. rule. Yeah, it is as you can. Um, yeah. yeah, written about the song about a girl. So after all the grimness, we've got a song which is about a girl. But there are some weird parallels to, you know, like with the lyrical themes of the rest of the album. Yeah. That al- that line about being guilty of kicking myself in the teeth is a bit like a, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some of them bring home a bit. Um, I, I would say that this is an obvious single for this album. I think it was a single, wasn't it? Mm. And and ironically, it's it's for a, a balladesque kind of song. It's one of the faster songs on the whole it album, yeah. tempo wise. It's you know it's probably uh, up there with uh, "Damn That River." And there's, there's some really nice vocal arrangements, some nice counter melodies going on, especially towards the end of the song. Um, again, and I think that's as a result of you know those those lovely lush vocal harmonies. Mm. I think is a, a lot going on. Isn't yeah. It's, it's as a result of this chord sequence that's just a little bit... It's more open to, you know, these kind of harmonies. When you use sort of chromatic sort of chord sequences and melodies, you really, really limit your harmonic capabilities and vocabulary that you can use within that song. So I think that's one of the reasons why this song sounds so wide open in comparison and less claustrophobic arrangement-wise. And... I am absolutely convinced that I've just heard a mandolin towards <laughs> the end of that. Maybe um, you have. And and it kind of made me think, you know, maybe they'd been watching uh, the Shiny Happy People video on MTV and yeah. were like, do you know what we need in this song? Just to give it that little bit of lift. Well, it's the same era. It would yeah. have been about that time. Yeah. So, yeah, mid-92. Oh, can, no, can, you imagine, mid-91. Yeah, can, you, can you imagine the... the um, that's the word I'm looking for. The juxtaposition yeah. of seeing the LA riots on one channel and shiny happy people <laughs> yeah. on another. Yeah. Also, as well, if you think about it, you know, Woods kind of tagged on to the end of this. Yeah. If they'd have kept the original running order without Wood, this would have been the last song on the album. Yeah. But that said, I, I really love how this song resolves itself to hmm. a major chord. Yeah. Um, it feels which, like a full stop, doesn't it, when it resolves yeah. to a major chord? So when you think about like the rest of the album, to resolve the whole thing on a major chord would be possibly the thing that makes people go back and listen to it mm. again and again and again, or one of the things like like if you're not so inclined, you know, if you're not sort of into this kind of music and you're not like inclined to sort of give it a second chance, maybe that the last chord of Down in a Hole being the last thing you heard might be the thing that makes you go, oh, it wasn't so bad, that. It was all right. <laughs> you know, just that little bit oh, of yeah. uplifting yeah. Um, harmony at the end. So, tagged on to the end, it wasn't actually done in the sessions, was it? But at the end of the album, we get the song Wood. Yeah, yeah. Which, which was, I think, recorded for the single soundtrack, was, wasn't yeah. it? yeah. Which is probably one of my favourite Alice in Chains songs. I feel like I've said that a few times now. Written by Jerry Cantrell. It's about Andrew Wood, isn't it? 
the lead singer of Mother Love Bone. Yes. It's kind of yeah. sort of written in um, tribute to him. But he said it's also about kind of like a general dislike of judgmental people. Um, I just think it's a great song. I absolutely love it. And it gets dismissed a little bit because it's almost like it's just been tagged on at the end. But I still see it as being part of the rest of the album. I never really saw it as being like something that was just tagged on to the end of it. I think maybe because, like, you know, you've been with this album since its release Mm. and have lived with it since then. I've sort of come to, again, it's another album that we've covered that I've come to a bit later in life. Yeah. And I'm very much a purist in the, like, the body of work. But it's the album. Yeah, I know. It was on the original version of the album. but But it wasn't recorded at the same time as the other 12 tracks. Right. Do you know what I mean? And I it do was, know And it was recorded for a different purpose, and I, and I think it was probably included at the behest of somebody at the label yeah. who said, put this single that was quite successful on the album, otherwise the album might not sell as many copies. And it kind of, it kind of feels like that that's sort of mm. why it was included. As great as it is, for me, it doesn't sit with... The rest of the, just production wise, it's. I mean, you can tell it's sort of got Rick Parashar's stamp yeah. on it because it sounds very similar to like Ten, mm. that sort of production style. It, it, for me, it's not dark enough, right? For you know, thematically to to sit with the rest of. It Only would, on an album like this would 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 yeah, would yeah. be considered. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like dark enough. It's it's kind of like if Roses in the Hospital appeared on the Holy Bible. Oh, right, okay. Do you know what I mean? That's how I feel about it. It's a great song, but it's not right, part okay. of the same body of, of work. So you did it. Well done, Phil. You got to the end. Thanks. Thank you. Well done, you too. Do you think you'll listen to this album again anytime yeah, yeah. soon? Yeah, I do. I do. You do? I do, yeah. I mean, it's on my grunge playlist. Oh, good. And my 1990s playlist, and and it, it's it's not like Holy Bible now, where like a, a Holy Bible song comes on and I just skip it because <laughs> I can't I can't like uh, Yes came on yesterday on my headphones and I was like no no not yet it's too raw it's too, too soon, soon. <laughs> it's yeah, too, it's soon. too soon but um, I've listened to Down in a Hole yeah. um, and Damn That River's just a phenomenally great riff which I never tire of of, of mm. listening to so yeah yeah. Because you've only come to it more recently, yeah. Does it does it not make you feel a bit sad as well? This album, knowing uh, what happened, because like fifty percent of the band are now dead. It doesn't make me sad really, and I think it's because I, I haven't lived with it for all that long. I think because, th- especially considering the lyrical content of it, it's not like you can say, you know, you can look back thirty years later and think, oh well, you know, they got through that, yeah, you know, and it's a document, yeah. and they actually yeah. pulled themselves through it. You know, they didn't. Yeah. It's a bit like watching JFK in the car just about to turn that corner, yeah. you know, on the video. Yeah. It's like it's got that feel to it for me. Yeah, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. If I could draw a comparison to Nirvana, like Nirvana is a band that I really struggle to listen to now. Yeah. Because it was such a massive part of, you know, our teenage years. At the time, you know, when, when Kurt Cobain died... I was so naive to the realities of, you know, his life and what was going on that it's only in, in, in later years that I've sort of read about 
all, all those things and have thought, fucking hell, you know, that must have been a really, really, really difficult time and, and existence for him. So that, that that makes, you know, with, with the benefit of hindsight, even more so, it makes Nirvana quite a difficult listen mm. for me. Like, I, I don't purposefully seek them out and put them on. You don't want to do in utero next then? Oh, do you know, I could, I could do, I could do. I mean, I'm not that much of a pussy. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, we're going to take a different direction, though, aren't we? This is the last of the first six episodes that we've recorded prior to releasing them into the wider world. So it kind of feels like we've we've sort of reached a bit of a milestone. Yes. Um, you know, we've we've sort of um, learnt a lot, I think, in these first six episodes about how to go about producing a. Um, an engaging and listenable... Um, and a very long podcast. Very long podcast, yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, what, what comes next, I, th- I think we will be uh, making an effort to vary the, the albums that we that we discuss. Um, I'm quite aware that we haven't included anything by female artist as yet, which we will rectify. And maybe sort of we'll take a look at some less rocky, grungy, mm. metal bands... And maybe you know venture into other genres as well, because mm, back, we Backstreet Boys and yeah, 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 that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, wham. Well, you know, make it big is an absolute stone cold eighties pop classic. Duran Duran. Yeah, Rio. We could do that. I do like that. <laughs> it's a great album. It's a great album. Yeah. So on that it's, bombshell. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Yeah. And, and we'll see yeah. you in a series two, not season. Series two, two, yeah, the next the next run of six. Yep. Thanks for listening. See you later. Bye. Bye. Just a couple of blokes pouring over nine and notes. We're the rock geeks. Yeah, we're the rock geeks. Who played on that? Who played on the other? Who did the album for the album cover? We're the rock geeks. Yeah, we're the rock geeks. Thank you for listening to the Rock Geeks podcast. If you have any comments, corrections and or constructive criticism, you can contact us at therockgeeks at gmail.com. If you have anything unnecessarily rude to say, please put it in your own trash folder and delete it to save us the bother. While we do read every email we receive, we cannot unfortunately guarantee a reply. The Rock Geeks is researched, written and presented by Phil Greenwood and Julian Gallagher. Jingles composed and recorded by Phil Greenwood and Julian Gallagher. Editing by Phil Greenwood. If you have enjoyed the Rock Geeks podcast, please consider joining us at Patreon, where in exchange for your generosity you will receive ad-free episodes, bonus content and early access. Or alternatively, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave us a five-star review and tell your friends about us. 